Hey, this is Amy Lombardi from TuneCore, and you are listening to TuneCore's Music Made Me podcast. I am in TuneCore's Entertainment Relations Department, and I'm based in Austin, Texas. Today, we are going to do a producer spotlight, and we're talking with someone who has had great influence over my life since I was like 12 years old. So I'm, I've already pre-warned Tim Palmer that I'm going to geek out on him, but I'm also going to warn anybody who's listening. We're going to present this interview in two parts. Here's part one. Um, so Tim Palmer, welcome to Music Made Me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. I, I, when I asked you if I could do a, you know, a spotlight on you and, and talk to you for our podcast, I, I knew the big, big projects you worked on. I knew you mixed Pearl Jam's 10. I knew you worked with Robert Plant and produced Now and Zen. And I knew you worked on a U2 record, but I didn't know you were also part of like my, my youth. And you recorded a song by Kajagugu that was on their debut album, which a lot of people would recognize because it's in the opening credits of 16 Candles, which is another like very seminal part of most people in my generation's childhood. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, as I said. And it's, it's funny, actually, because uh, it's very appropriate, the title, because music definitely did did make me. Um, yeah. And also, I must say, I had no idea until I spoke to you that, uh, that the, the Kajagoogoo instrumental track that I did was used at the front of 16 Candles. I actually put the movie on and watched it, and I had no idea. Are you kidding me? No, that's really cool, because what I love about that is, as you said, it's such an important 80s movie, and it was such an important song for me, because that was probably the first um, track that I actually produced. Wow. Um, so we can talk about that later, but, or unless you want to talk about it, it now. Was, but but that was the very first song that I ever made onto a proper album to get released. And that was like a huge debut album because it coincided with MTV kind of being launched in the U.S. in, in its first few years. And the lead singer from that band, Lamal, was really cute. Mm-hmm. And I had a fifth grade crush on him. And um, so uh, because he was cute and because the band made videos and they knew that that was smart, they, they were on MTV all the time. So this, they were even more popular in the That's U S right. than, than maybe just having the song on the radio. Well, their, their record was actually being produced. Uh, I'll go straight in, um, was actually being produced by Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran. For which and I also read about. It was a co-production between Nick and a producer called Colin Thurston, who I was lucky enough uh, to be assist assist on on most of his projects Um, and uh, Colin was great to work with and when it came to about seven or eight o'clock in the evening Colin and Nick who'd had enough of a full day's work uh, decided that they would leave the studio and go out to dinner and they would leave the band to continue on with me as the assistant so I used to stay up till midnight recording guitars and then they would literally come in and check them in the morning but this was a wonderful break for me oh my god because I got the trust of the band and then what happened was we'd finished the record and the band said okay we need b-sides and Colin and Nick really didn't want to be bothered with just the b-sides and I said I'm in I'll do that I would love to do the b-sides and um that was agreed upon and I got hold of a demo and I wrote some notes of ideas for the song and we cut these two b-sides and um, luckily for me the label heard them and thought they were great and decided to stick them on the album so I went from just being the tape op the assistant on the album to producing two songs and uh, the album as you said 
went gold and I got my first gold disc and I didn't even know that it was at the front of that movie. I had no idea it was in 16 Candles, but that instrumental was one of the first tracks I ever produced. That is so interesting that they put an instrumental on the album as well, because it's a debut album. And, and it is, it's just like you hear that song and you don't know for that it's Kajagugu initially, but you know that song, you know what movie is coming on. It's just, it's really cool. Yeah, and the fact that it's called Kajagugu and they chant their name in it is probably a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, how old were you when you recorded, when you produced that song? Uh, I was probably about, I reckon 20 or 21 at the le- yeah. or the oldest. Yeah. And you came from North Shields in, in Northeast England, which... When I read about it, said it was like first recorded in the year 1225. So it's a really old, old coastal town. How did you, how did you get your start in, how did you get your interest in music and production? Well, it's interesting actually. I mean, Newcastle uh, and North Shields, which is basically a small town. I lived in a place called Whitley Bay, which was very close to North Shields. And it's very close to Scotland. Um, Hadrian's Wall is up there. And it really is the border, pretty much, the top of England. And uh, it's a very blue-collar place, Newcastle. I mean, it's famous for coal mining and shipbuilding. And and in its day, they were the greatest shipbuilders in the world. The biggest ships were made in the north of England. And that was, you know, my family's tradition up there. My, particularly my grandfather, who was a trade union leader, and he went to battle and protected all his workers and uh, marched to London for their rights and things like that. So growing up was wonderful for so many reasons. One being that I was so close to the ocean and I could cycle my bike down to the sea with my friends and just play in the, in the rocks and all that sort of stuff. And the other was that, you know, I got to spend a lot of time with my granddad who took me to the miner's house and we would drop off food packages. And, you know, I got to see his view and the history of the place as well. So it was, it was, it was wonderful. And it's funny, actually, because the, there's a Dire Straits song called Tunnel of Love and he talks specifically about Whitley Bay in that song because um, he came from that part of the world too because it was a seaside town and it had a, a sort of um, fun fair in the middle which was called the Spanish City and he talks very sort of romantically about his memories of that place. So hearing that song always brings me back to that time. But um, my as far as music, I think, you know, because we left, we left Newcastle when I was about eight, but one of my first... Uh, musical awakenings when I, you know, the, the light was switched on was when I was at school in Whitley Bay. I remember we went into a lesson and uh, the teacher read out a poem, or at least that's what I thought it was. And he started to say, picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine dreams and marmalade skies and read this whole poem. And we sat there you know, okay, it was great, it's a poem, but and then he at the end of it said, Now listen to this. Oh and he put a record on and it just blew my mind. And I always remember that moment of thinking, you know, that connection between the lyric and what you can do to surround it yeah. was it just uh was just remarkable. And uh, once again it proves the power of teachers and yeah, it's and, a brilliant and, and music way to, teachers. Yeah, that's know? a brilliant way to to talk about music too and relate it to other parts of your education. 
Absolutely. Okay. So, okay, so you left, your family left Newcastle at, at eight. Is that, was that when y'all went to London or yes. did you head to London on your, okay. My parents were both in uh, the television business and my dad was offered oh. a job as a director at um, a company called Thames Television in London. So he wanted to get into that company and um, we all moved down as a family and I was eight and that's why I have no Geordie because that's what a person from Newcastle has a Geordie accent. What does uh, that sound like? Well, Judy man, way I man, I come from Newcastle. <laughs> they speak like they almost sing. It sing, it's, it's, it's a sing wonderful, songy, yeah. it's a wonderful, uh, it's almost like Trinidad wonderful accent. But I grew up in the suburbs of London, so my accent is just sort of very traditional English accent, really. But uh, yeah, we moved when I was eight, and um, it was you know this was a time when I was listening to, starting to get into music, and the, the beginning of my music. Love was probably bands, I'm thinking back, was probably bands like The Sweet and Gary Glitter and early Glam, um, Bo, early Bolan and, and, and Bowie. But the real change for me when I really became passionate about it was when I became a teenager and I was still living in the suburbs of London and my friends and the group of friends that surrounded me started to get into punk music. <clears throat> and that was when it really became a full-on thing for me. That's when music made me. That was the beginning right there. I'm totally going to pull that that audio clip and you were going to use it somewhere else. Um, what punk were you into? That, well, I loved The like, Clash. Was that like I, Thatcher years? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, that's part of how punk happened. Punk there was right. a sort of anger in, the, in society and, and there was a disillusionment with, with a lot of um, social things that were going on with conservatism and and also uh, it was just the fact that I think people had got tired of the generation of everything being so um, you know all the prog rock and everything being so indulgent and this was an opportunity to get back to something a bit fresher and rawer and uh, you know the whole punk ethos is something that stayed with me I must say ever since then I mean you know even in production today I mean to me it's always been about not about how you get there but as long as you do get there it doesn't matter how you get there it doesn't matter whether it's on a guitar that cost five bucks and or if somebody played it wrong or there's the wrong note if it works and it's emotional that's good enough for me so that punk thing really did stay with me but that was the beginning of uh, my love affair with with uh, music full on and you know our friends we collected singles we went to the markets we had the plastic bags and collected every picture sleeve and all the colors and it was everything to me and then we bands and I was in a punk band called Emergency Exit and I sung in that band for a while and we made demos so that was my first experience of seeing studios and uh, it was just a great time. Unfortunately the academics still had to go out the window <laughs> so uh, you know it's uh, it's a good job that uh, this that I ended up working in music because if it hadn't worked out I'd have been struggling. <laughs> well so you started you were in bands and then you started working in in studios around London? Yeah, I mean, I realized that... Uh, and I actually had to go back for a second. Okay. Can I interrupt myself? You sure And can. say, like, uh, there was something I read about you using, like, a pepper shaker and um, doing percussion on a fire extinguisher on a on the Pearl Jam record. Jen. Absolutely, yeah. Is that... That's true. So That like, is true. So, yeah, everybody remember that. Yeah, it, I mean, that was just a be. perfect example of, you know, just use what's around you, um, necessity being the mother of invention and all that. I mean, it was... We'll talk about this later, but um, there was a time when a lot of albums were made in something called residential studios where 
you'd all gather and make a record in the country or wherever. So sometimes getting equipment to and from that wasn't actually there was a problem. So you could become creative with what's around you. And I, I was just mixing a song and I wanted some more movement in a certain couple of spots. So I just went to the uh, kitchen and just grabbed what I needed. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked fine, or so it seems. That's fantastic. Okay, so just a note to everybody listening who's, you know, in, getting into recording. You can be as creative as possible. Nobody needs to see what you're using. As long as it sounds good. Um, okay, so back to Utopia Studios and the studios you were working in around London. And yeah, so then my break, my break was literally that Kajagugu record. Well, no, the, the the break to get into the studio was was wonderful because um, I, I one night through my father, I met a guy called Phil Wayman, and uh, he told me, you know, we were chatting, and he told me that he was a record producer, and I'd never met a record producer before, and it was just happened to be somebody that my dad had met. And, uh, Which is funny because your dad was a TV director. Yes, exactly. But he had somehow come into contact with Phil, and I met Phil because he said, "Oh, my son would love to meet you." And I met Phil, and I told him about my love of music, and it turned out Phil had produced the Suite, and the Bay City Rollers, and Boomtown Rats, and he had a studio in London. So I asked him, "Is there any way I could come and visit?" And he said, "Absolutely." Um, so my dad and I went up and toured the studio one night, and. Uh, at the end of the tour, I basically said to him, look, Phil, you know, how do you get a job here? What do you have to do to work in a place like this? And he said, well, you basically put your name down. And if we need a, a guy to be a runner, a T-boy, as they call them in England, then uh, we'll reach out. So I said, well, can I join that list? And he said, absolutely. So I went home and Literally just... Literally a T-boy, like go, going to get the tea. Yeah, no experience required apart from a love of music. Uh, and, and, and obviously, you know, as what became, you know, studio, the studio um, etiquette was something you learned when you got there. But when you arrived, you were as green as could be. So I, I was on this list. And eventually, after about six or seven months, we got a phone call saying, look, there's a, an opportunity. Do you want to come up for an interview? So I went for an interview and I, uh, I got the gig. So I started at Utopia Studios, literally um, making tea and clearing up cables. And it was great. It was the best. I mean, that's all I could have ever wanted for. I was, my first days there, I was put on a, the very first session I, I was put on, and they said, go into Studio One, make sure everyone's happy, pick up any cables on the floor, ask them if they want tea. So I went in, and there'd been a session that I'd been working all night, and it was uh, Stevie Wonder. Oh my which was like <laughs> which was just insane so one of the first cups of coffee i brought in was for stevie and um i got to sit in and watch them work oh my and God. then after that a, a band a rock band called grand prix came in to make an album and i would be you know running around setting up mic stands for the engineer and i just loved it and the, the, i remember phil saying look you can leave at six to get because i was having to take a long train ride to get home and i said i don't want to go home i'll stay so i used to just stay till the end of the session and uh, figure it out from there because it was great i mean what more fun could you get than being in the room and watching a band make a record so it was the the best opportunity to learn uh, you learned um things that you thought were wonderful from certain producers and engineers and you also learned from others things that you thought were a terrible idea about how they handled artists but you actually were in the room watching how they how they made it all happen and that was pretty invaluable i'd say um, and it was a great, you know, it was a, you know, you were an apprentice, really. Yeah, I was just about to say, uh, it's which an so many young people don't get that opportunity. They, they, they can replace some of it now with 
I think the internet has been very kind to producers and engineers because now we have access to so many of these people. And, you know, like this now, people will talk about their experience. This Whereas in the past, you were just a name on an album sleeve. So, it, And to get to, to watch that person speak was almost impossible. So now it's actually a little bit more helpful. But um, for a long time, uh, the only true way, I think, was to actually get into a studio. Yeah. Uh, so I want to I want to pause for a second and just in case our listeners want to want some definition from you on on the role of a mixing engineer or the role of a mastering engineer and how those roles are different from a producer. Just just for definition's sake. Sure. I think, okay. I think uh, sort of brief a brief overview. Yeah, I think sometimes. Well, basically, as a record producer, you're you are hired to help the label and the artist get the best possible product that they can. Um, I found uh, I was more in the leaning towards the artist's side, wanting them to make the great record rather than feeling too much pressure from the labels, which sort of came later. But um, That's the punk know, rock. Yeah, I mean, your job as a producer from day one is, you know, once you're connected with that artist is you hear their material, you listen to their songs, you talk to them about the arrangements, you talk about lyrics, you talk about things that could be better, and this is all before you get to the studio. You basically are in from day one. You almost, in many situations, become like an extra member of the band. You oversee the rehearsals for the album, which is called pre-production. You try ideas out about changing the length of the middle section or adding a middle section or changing the way the guitar... Whatever, the, the speed of the guitar part in the second verse, whatever it may be, you fine-tune before you get to the studio. And then in the studio, you oversee the recording with an engineer. Now, the engineer is in charge of all the sonics and all the um, recording. So he's in charge of the microphones, and he helps or the she. producer, or she, absolutely. That's when just I say my that, joke. No, You're absolutely. not the only person that I've done that to. No, I, 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 that's, no, that's very important. I think that's very important, and I, I will do that. But <laughs> basically, the engineer um, helps the producer make the record sound the way that it should sound and help him achieve that vision. And a mixer, once everything's been recorded and everything's in the right place, and this is new, this is relatively new in the last 20 years, a mixer would come in, and they're often a separate party, and I do this myself, and you get presented with a, an album's worth of material, and you make the final balances of the recording and present that as a final mix. In the old days, the producer and engineer would carry the album through and they would mix it themselves. But nowadays, a mixer is somebody who's another part of the chain who's often brought in because they have a fresh perspective or because they have a reputation for being a great mixer, and they will mix it. And then after all that, mastering is just putting the final touches on all the mixes where somebody will look at the whole record and say, the third song here is a little bit dull. Let's brighten it up a bit. Let's increase the level because it's a little quiet, this song. And they balance out the whole record so that it flows and so that they get the maximum effect when it is on a radio or is on a CD or whatever the medium is. So, you know, every part of the process is important. Now, now people are mixing for <clears throat> digital Right. Yeah, I mean, it really. I mean, it I mean just, yes, they they, they they mix they mix now. Um, bearing in mind when you mix things now, you're aware of how people will be listening to it, which is digitally, uh, which is through streaming, which is on headphones, which is on phones. But 
really um, you're just trying to make the best possible product you can and yes you're right you have to be wary of the fact that people aren't listening on vinyl and they're not sitting quietly like they used to with headphones and they're not going to listen to the whole album and they haven't got big speakers so yes that is important but but really when you mix a song you're just trying to bring out the best you can from that song yeah I remember there was a bunch of years there when streaming was coming up and things really weren't as sounding good to listen to on you know if you had to listen to a mix on your computer or something like that it just it just wasn't we weren't we didn't have the technology yet because people were still playing things on cds yeah i think that the thing that happened is that there used to be two separate things you used to be able to make a physical product that you were proud of that was the way that you wanted it to be and you had total control of that because people would actually buy what you'd signed off on and that was on a cd or an album and then when it was played on the radio, the radio would squash it, they would compress it. That's right. And that's fine because that was, that was what radio was and that sort of had an excitement in itself. But at the end of the day, when it was heard on the radio, they could go and buy the thing that you were proud of and hear it the way you wanted it. Now it's changed because people make records to sound like they were on the radio. They squash them right from the word go. And there is very little product that you can actually... Because you, you can't actually make a record now and have a place where people will hear it the way you wanted it to be because you're going to hear it from Apple's iTunes. You're going to hear it on Spotify. You're going to hear it on Rhapsody. Whatever it is, it's going to sound different. And you have no control over that anymore. Yeah. Because basically people don't own the product that you wanted them to own. So it's very, very different now. Yeah, it's actually, it's not even considered music in its in its digital form. It's considered data. Yeah, well, it's just, yeah, <clears throat> So sadly. that's like a, yeah. a law. Uh, so the, the other thing is, like, I, I always, when I, I would always listen to masters, like, in the crummiest boombox I had. And I would listen to it in the car. And then I would listen to it on a great system just to kind of see how it always sounded and every place um all right so let's talk about some more of your work in the 80s we'll get away from educating people so the the other the other bands that you were involved with and you can put me in chronological order like cutting crew was a huge song with i could die in your arms that was early that was very early that one that was pretty much around the period of the kajagoogoo i was still employed by a studio at that time I wasn't self-employed. I hadn't left to be a freelance engineer. And this is another example of being fortunate, luck, whatever you like to call it, being at the right place at the right time. But when you worked for a studio, bands would book studios because they loved the studio and they loved the staff. So if you were the staff, you could end up working with a band and they would just book in and say, we'll use whoever's you know, whoever the studio engineer is. And and that was what happened on Cutting Crew. So Cutting Crew booked in some sessions to mix some songs. And I was put on that session as their engineer. So I mixed uh, Just Died In Your Arms Tonight with the band. It took us quite a long time, I remember. But, but, um, and that's how it, that's how that happened. I mean, it was literally that I was at the right place at the right time. And that song went on to be one of the biggest songs of my career, as far as, um, you know, people recognizing it and hearing it. Um, But, um, you know, who knows? Maybe one of the other engineers at the studio could have been put on that session. And that's that's the way it works out. That's the honest truth. But, but it's the honest truth, but it wouldn't have been the same song. Well, it would. Because... It would. It would have maybe sounded a little different, but, uh, you know... I mean, the bones were there, but... Absolutely. Um, okay, so that whole, that whole time period was really huge. It was like new wave, new romantic, whatever you want to call it. Mm. They used to call it 
alternative. That's what used to be called alternative yeah, music, but the 80s. Um, the 80s. But um, what was it like to be part of that whole scene? It was great. It was like Mighty Lemon Drops, like the World Without End record, yeah. and, and um, Gene Loves Jezebel, which also got a lot of placements yeah. in films. Yeah. And, uh, and The Mission, and The, and mission, the House of Love, and House James, Love. and all those it's, sort of bands. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 thing that, the, the thing about the 80s was that uh, as a as a young engineer, um, there was a lot of new technology coming through. Uh, when I first started, Lindrums just came out. We had the Fairlight, we had emulators, and there was a real freshness to recording. What are um, all those things? Are those they're all like um, well? Sonic the Fairlight drums. was a way. To, it was one of the first samplers. Lindrum was the, one of the first drum machines. Okay. Um, you know, we had the eight hundred eight, and instead of being very traditional, a recording studio with people coming in and setting up drums a lot of people were arriving with boxes of technology with you know with drum machines with sequences so it was a very uh, you know exciting time because you know it, there was a, an opportunity for new things to develop and there was no shortage of money in the industry either so people would do things like um, record a drum kit in the old days you'd always just play it in one go with with some mics over it but in the 80s people started to do things like let's record the drum kit in pieces we'll we'll mic up the kick drum we'll play that first then we'll add the snare we'll do that separately you know people were challenging the traditional approaches and it was a fun time to be uh, part of making music um, so I got to you know work with a lot of that technology very early on I worked uh, as an engineer at the studio again, I worked on um, the first Dead or Alive record, oh which God. was which was great, and that's how I ended up working with Wayne Hussey, who later was the, the lead singer from the band The Mission UK. Yeah. We became friends when I worked on the Dead or Alive album because he was guitar player in that band for a while, and um, it was just a you know it was just a, a, a really fun time, and there was a lot of great artists moving through. It was only later when I left the studio and started to produce records myself that I had the chance to work with guitar bands, and it started to slowly move back a little bit more towards guitars and things. But the early part of my career was John Fox and Dead or Alive and fashion and a lot of bands that was was all about the technology mm -hmm. and they're more like the the synth new wave yeah. bands. so what was the first um you know track that you that you produced well probably that that cutting crew song no the first track i produced i've got a co-production on was, was the, the kajagoogoo Kaj Kaj and really. that's a self-titled song Kaj exactly Kaj and then we did a couple of b-sides as i said and then what happened with that situation was that the singer lamal that you talked about he fell out with the band and they kicked him out so he was still signed to emi so he he had enjoyed working with me and said would you produce my solo record oh so i went from um doing the kajagoogoo as an assistant to producing an album with lamal and uh, we Which brought in a co-producer who was a friend of mine called d harris who was in a band called fashion and he was sort of a music guy because he was a great guitar player a great bass player and i was more of the engineer and we made that record the three of us together and so we made lamal's first record so that was one of my first productions too I'm, I'm my mind is on fire right now so wait was that does that also include any of like the never-ending story was that never-ending story was on that record but that record that song was produced by Giorgio Moroder it was from the soundtrack of the movie oh yeah. that's right that's right but yeah. that was part of that record yeah that song was added on at the end okay yeah we had one sense. song called only for love and it was my first top 20 single it got to number 16 I think and uh, it was just you know for a 21 or 22 year old guy to have a f top 20 single was pretty 
was pretty great, I must so say. What about the scene of like the, the your colleagues? What do you mean? Like the other producers, other engineers in London at the time. Was it was it tight knit? Was it like w- w- there was so much music? There was. I mean, you did get to know other people, and you know, obviously, I got to know all the producers and engineers. You must have been like the youngest one in the scene. Well, we all, as I said, it was it was like a hierarchy of people coming through. So. Um, one of my here's a funny story. So one of my best friends at school had become a draftsman, and he was a drummer when we were in our bands called Chris Sheldon, and uh, he was working away as a draftsman. So when I was um, moved up to being an engineer and, a, and an assistant, a proper one, the studio owner Phil said, "Have you got any other mates who love music as much as you do? Because clearly you love doing this." And I said, "I, I think I do." So I called Chris up and I said, do, "Do you fancy making tea and being a runner in a studio?" And he had a proper job you know making a decent salary and uh, he said I'm in I'm <laughs> so he packed in his job and he started off as the new uh, um, tape op um, the new t-boy I should say and um, our careers we worked together because as I moved to engineer he became my assistant and when I started to produce records for a while he was my engineer he went off on his own obviously and uh, he's he he uh, he mixed um, the first uh, the color and the shape for the Foo Fighters and uh, Chris and I both mix records, and he has a pretty much identical studio to me in London. So, and we're best friends to this day. We we sort of followed each other through the industry, and he's worked with all sorts of bands like Therapy and Biffy Clyro, and you know, and he's worked with a lot of guitar bands too. But you know, there was a, a great example of you know getting to know people. Well, I mean, we were mates from school. We've been friends since we were thirteen. Wow, um, the 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 whole scene in the U.S. at that time there mm. was the it was just like exploding on alternative radio. Like I mentioned, like where I grew up, it was WLIR. We could, right. we lived on a, we lived in a, a hilly town in New Jersey, a rural mountainous town. So you could get the signal from this radio station in Long Island and it became WDRE, but it played all of the music that was coming out of the UK and, and just the, the new wave music that was coming out of the U S as well. Um, all right. So, Moving on a little bit, when did you leave the studio and start on your own? I can't remember the exact year, but once I after or like I, what was the first? Well, after I d- d- done Lamal's record, I was starting to get offers of work, and I decided I'd give it a go and, and be you know freelance. And uh, fortunately for me, it worked out. And uh, as as you mentioned, a lot of the bands that I did around that period with with like the Mission and you know the House of Love, and I worked a lot for. Um, Mercury Records for Phonogram Records. I did a band called Texas, ironically, that I ended up I here. Saw that? Yeah, I did. I did you the can first. Say that out loud. I did the first. I did the first. <laughs> Johnny likes Texas. Johnny likes Texas. Uh, um, I did the first two Texas records. That was also for that same. And then I worked with Tears for Fears, and Thanks. there was this whole period of all these bands, and it was just wonderful. Um, Fontana was the other label that was. Uh, and the Catherine Wheel that was also oh there. Oh my gosh, yes! And this was all when I was living in London and uh, as a as a, a freelance record producer, and you know, good times. Yes, and you did, uh, and then, all right. So you're still in London, and I noticed some like chronology. So I think three years consecutive years: 1988, 1989, and 1990, which would have still made you not under 30 years oh, yeah. old. You had produced. Robert Plant's Now and Zen in 1988. Yeah. Yeah. You had produced the debut from Tin Machine, which yeah. is a project with David Bowie. 
and you mixed Pearl Jam's debut 10, which some considered to be like the greatest debut album of all time. Certainly one of the most commercially successful. Yeah, how did that happen? I don't, I am like, (laughs) how did you, I I have so many specific questions about that. Like, yeah, it was a that great. Is, that was a great. Yeah, it was a good that's run. That's a really there. good run. That's a really good run. And well, I'd worked with Robert before, you see. So Robert Plan, I worked with first in 1986, and he. Th- this is what was interesting about the transition of me being able to get back to working with more sort of guitar bands was because I'd come up through the uh, the synth world with Dead or Alive and the bands I mentioned. Robert Plant, when he made his album Shaken and Stirred in about 1986, he was looking to work with an engineer who was confident and aware of the new technology and of the synths and all that stuff and I of course fitted that bracket because I'd worked with a lot of these new synthy bands so I ended up co-producing um, a Robert Plant record which was amazing and really you know I wasn't really up to speed as much as I should have been at that point as far as recording I'll be honest um, because of the way I'd come up I'd come up with the drum machines and that and I hadn't done too many big band setups. So I was flying by the seat of my pants on those early sessions. I mean, we went to a studio that I wasn't familiar with. I had a full band and they all needed different headphone balances. It was a console I didn't know. Richie Hayward from Little Feet was the drummer. I mean, we had this amazing setup and I was too young to really have had the experience to know how to do it. And I was struggling in there a bit. And and at one point, Robert started to get annoyed about something taking too long. And he went and complained to the studio owner and said, you know, your studio's, you know, not really happening. And the owner said, there's nothing wrong with my studio. It's that young, <laughs> it's that young kid you've got in there. He doesn't know what he's doing. So luckily for me, Robert liked me enough to stick with me and, and he, it was fine. And I'm actually still very proud of the way that record sounds. But, but I was... Uh, I was learning as I went. There's no doubt about it. Um, A lot of these opportunities I found that happened for me, sometimes the opportunities come to you before you're even ready for them, truth be it. I mean, I feel now, because of the fact that I've just been doing it so long, there's very little that would scare me because I've had the experience. But back then, you know, there was a lot that could scare me. And it was uh, uh, very exciting because of that, because I, I really wasn't, I wasn't a seasoned veteran at that point. And working with people like David Bowie and Robert Plant and, you know, think, uh, established artists oh, yeah, that was, was quite, of- quite scary. So we did um, Shaken and Stirred, and that was great. And luckily for me, um, he enjoyed working with me so much, he kept me on over to the next record. And at the next record, he had a completely new band and a whole new approach. So I was quite honoured to be the only one that carried across. So the next record I co-produced with Robert, and um, that was Now and Zen, which was a real piece of okay. 80s. And uh, some guitars, maybe not as many as people would like, but I sort of managed to get a few in there. But he, you know, was Robert's, as you know, is an amazing guy. And he doesn't fall on past glories by any stretch of the imagination he's always reinventing himself and always prepared to take chances and he liked the 80s at that time I think like me he looks back at some of it and probably cringes a little bit but he loved the Depeche Mode and he wanted synths on the record and you can imagine for me I had the label in one ear saying why are you putting synthesizers on a roller plant yeah, record right. and I'm looking at the artist who is really you know my boss and who I wanted his record to be right saying no this is what I want to do so it was you know it was challenging but but now and zen came out great and um from that um 
Yep, I got the opportunity to continue working with guitar bands because once I'd worked with Robert Plant, bands would give me the respect then that, you know, you know how to record guitars and things because we had Jimmy Page on the record, things like that. So, you know, I had the chance to record with Jimmy Page. So I got a bit of credibility with with guitar players and things. So I uh, got to work with guitar bands and and then Reeves Gabrels, who was David Bowie's guitar player, had talked to Billy Duffy and Billy had said, oh, Tim's great with guitars. And I ended up getting a phone call from David Bowie. And that was the beginning of that journey. So uh, next thing I knew, I was in Switzerland with Reeves and David working on demos for what was at that time going to be David Bowie's next solo album. Okay, thank you for joining us for uh, my interview with producer and mixer Tim Palmer. That was part one. Isn't he fascinating his career has been amazing so please don't forget to tune in for part two and that's going to be coming up soon take care thanks for listening to music made me the tune Corp podcast the opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of tune Corp. check out tunecore.com to help you distribute your music register your original songs worldwide and more connect with us on all social channels at tune Corp. don't forget to rate review and subscribe to us on itunes 